Welcome everyone to episode 39 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? So today I am jumping in with some really good news. For those of you who have been listening over the last couple months or really year, um, you'll know that for over a year now, my wife and I have been working on um, in vitro fertilization. We've been going through, I say we, but it's really just been her, going through egg extractions and then trying to pair them up to get a viable fetus, to get a viable embryo. Excuse me, we're not at fetus stage yet. But after four iterations and a lot of money, we got our first normal egg. So this has been over a year long journey. Um, you know, when you're doing this over the age of 40, uh, but like we talked about last episode, you're, you're up against chromosomal decay. So it's really hard to get um, a viable embryo after the age of 40. And it takes a lot of effort and more than we realized when we were getting into this. But after four iterations of this, we have one viable egg and we have one mosaic egg. Um, the mosaic egg, the really TLDR on that is there's a 4% chance of it actually taking and making it to. Obviously, we're going to try both eggs, but having a normal egg now brings us up to a better than 50% chance. Uh, so it's still, the odds are still tight, but I'll take 50 to 60% over 4%. Um, again, we're going to try both. You know, we're, we're excited to have both eggs, but to have a normal egg and have a really good chance of making this pregnancy happen. Um, you know, we're a couple months away from the first try, but we're really excited about it. It's just finally some good news after going through all. So what was that? Did they call you and tell you? How did they, how did you find out? Yeah. So every time uh, the process is you, you go in uh, for, for the egg retrieval, it's like a two week process. You start taking, she, t- she starts taking hormones um, to basically line the tubes up with eggs anywhere from, depending on the woman and the time, it could be as many as, as low as 10 eggs, as many as 40 in each tube, or uh, excuse me, between the two, and then um, between the two sides. Uh, woman's only supposed to drop one egg at a time, but they pump it up to get eggs lined up. And then of those eggs, you want them to be a minimum of a certain size. So any that are undersized, they, uh, they can't match up with sperm. Uh, so those ones, those eggs get dropped. And then, so you have eggs that are the proper size, you match them up with the sperm and they'll, some of them will fertilize, some of them won't even fertilize at all. And then of the ones that fertilize within the first few days, they, they just drop off basically. They don't take, which is very similar to, it, it's basically when you're trying the natural way and a woman gets pregnant and it drops off, um, or she goes through uh, month after month not getting pregnant. This is what's happening. Sperm and egg is meeting up, but it's just not properly fertilizing to make an embryo. Or it makes an embryo for a day or two and then doesn't go to the next stage. Uh, that's not monitored when you're doing it the natural way because it just happens. And you're like, well, it's a month later. Let's try again. Uh, and and there's, there's a little bit more to it than this. I'm giving you the very condensed version. Um, but anyway, so we, we would go through, we'd pair up the eggs and then we just haven't gotten a viable embryo out of it. We haven't been able to go to the next stage with a viable embryo um, or, you know, in our viable meaning normal or mosaic or anything like that. Uh, So we finally got to a stage where we had a normal egg, uh, a normal, excuse me, I keep saying egg, embryo. So we actually have an implantable embryo. Um, So they, so you do the extraction, they, they match them up. And every couple of days they tell you like, all right, this is how many total eggs you had. All right. This is how many we paired up. This is how many survived. And each, the first three times we, 
excuse me, the first two times we were told, you know, nothing made it. The third time we had the mosaic. And then this fourth time they called us up, like, it was like almost two weeks later. And they said, Hey, you know, you've got a, a normal bank. So now we're, we're winding everything up to do an implantation, which is going to take about three months from now. So this has been a pretty epic journey you guys have, have done and, and obviously a lot of ups and downs along the way. What was that like when you got the phone call? Um, so it was funny. My wife gets the phone call and she comes in to tell me, uh, she tried to say the words, we have a normal egg. What she did instead was just squeal between tears. So, you know, typical husband reaction. I see my wife squealing and crying and I'm thinking some animal outside, one of our farm animals just died. And I'm like, what just died? And she goes, no, no, no. And she had to compose herself to actually speak coherently. And then she tells me like, we got a normal egg. We were, we're, we're doing this, we're moving forward. So we were both super excited about that. She's, she's really excited. I'm excited too, but it's also, um, now I'm more as excited as I am. I'm more terrified than I think I've ever been about anything. And it's because it's been a year, over a year. It's been almost two years total to get here. Um, about 16 or 17 months of egg extractions. And we're just so much against the clock or so much against our own biology that if this doesn't take really not sure we can do it again. I don't know that we can do more egg extractions and get more enough normal eggs to keep trying. Like, cause again, at a certain point, you, you know, you're, you're just up against your own chromosomal decay. So, so excited to try this, but so terrified at the same time. Yep, man, this is, this is really exciting. And, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, be ready to be more neurotic than you've ever been. <laughs> It's a strange thing to say to a man, but uh, it just, uh, when you realize what's at stake and how, how impactful it is for your life and how much of a blessing it is, man, you just become aware of everything that you need to get control of to make sure to make sure it goes the way you want. So just be ready for that. That's, I, I have to, I frequently have to de-neuroticize myself uh, in that respect, especially because I mean, we got started late as well. And uh and we've been told most of our lives that having kids is not a main priority for any, you know, any millennial, Gen Z or whatever. Uh, and that's totally fine to not to not care about having kids. And then once you get started on that process, you realize how impactful it is and how meaningful it is for your life and your purpose um, and how devastating it would be to not have it work out. And so just the stakes are incredibly high once you once you have some chips in, you just, oh my gosh. So anyway, that that's the only thing I, I was thinking is it's really exciting. Um, at the same time, just be ready to manage your emotions and your wife's emotions because they're going to go 10x. Oh yeah, I can imagine. You know, I can only imagine what's what's coming next. And it's just, and it's because there's so much beyond my control. And that's the hardest part is it's so, so much of this is beyond my control. And that, that, Men hate that, by the way, for any female listener. Men do not like when they can't affect the outcome of something. They're completely at the mercy of everybody else. Because um, what do you do? You, and that's I, I can understand why you're saying it's prepared to be more neurotic than you've ever been. It's because everything's out of my control. Um, and I just have to sit back and wait for results and hope that they're the results I want, or at least they're not devastating results. Um, that's, of course, why I'm so terrified right now. There's nothing I can do between now and then to affect the outcome. Um, other than try to keep my wife calm at any time that she's feeling, uh, which isn't the same thing as being able to control the situation. You know, I just hope and pray and that's all I can do at the moment. 
definitely. Yep. And, uh, and all your friends hope and pray as well. Um, aside from recommending that people obviously get started earlier, which I think every one of us would say, <laughs> um, what, what have you learned along the way that you think is, is useful or worth mentioning at this point to anybody who might be listening? Well, it's not just so much starting early, like that's an easy answer and that's the, the TradCon answer, but it's, you have to be the right person when you do it. Um, my wife and I couldn't have done this even five years ago. Uh, we were working too much. I was still in the military. There was six, 20, 16 hour days. There was like, um, we weren't in the parent mindset. And I know like you see it a lot, a lot online. I even know people like this in real life who they were too busy for kids, didn't want them, then got pregnant accidentally and their whole life changed and they loved having the kids. And that's great. But I spent enough time in law enforcement and I even saw this a lot in the military as people who had accidental pregnancies and didn't change their life for the better. And it's a very good possibility that five years ago or before then, I would have been in that category of person. I, I very good possibility I would have been the wrong person then to be a parent. And the kid would have suffered for it. My marriage would have suffered for it, everything. Right now, we are the right people, the right place in our marriage, everything um, to be having kids. And that's the more important part. It's not just having kids early. It's being being the right people for it. So if you're right now saying, I don't want kids, I don't ever want them. It's not just a matter of telling you, hey, you're, you're going to change your mind when you're older and you're up against the clock. It's trying to convince these people to change their mindset while they're still young and able to have kids that we got to undo all that, that propaganda, that, that Malthusian propaganda that's been infused into the, into millennials and Gen Z about never having kids, never being married. All of that's just all the red pill stuff saying, never get married. Like, God, you have to unfuck all of that to tell people like, no, you want to have a functional marriage. You want to love your spouse and you want to, you want to want kids, all of this before you're too old to do it. So it's no easy feat there. There's, so much in the way of that, but really I got to encourage you to get in that mindset of wife and kids are better than single alcoholic. Um, I, I just don't know how else to put it. Uh, fantastic point. I, I think about this all the time, actually. Um, there are people who are in the right spot, are the right people to have kids right now and just don't know it. And then when they get pregnant, they say, oh, well, it just turns you into, you know, the person you need to be. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it goes the other way. I've definitely seen it go the other way. Um, go, but... go to Walmart at 2 a.m. and still tell me that, that kids make every parent better. Yeah, exactly. Yep. At 2 a.m., you will see children under the age of five rampaging through Walmart. I guarantee it. Yep, yep. Um, the thing that uh, I think is the, the answer to that is we've, we've just had – this delay in, in maturation and, and becoming a man and becoming a, you know, a viable couple, right? Because uh, so many kids take so long to grow up. So many people take so long to encounter real adversity in their life. And for a man, it's critically important to you know encounter and overcome adversity, right? It's a rite of passage. As we mentioned in the last episode, men are constantly going through rites of passage. Men are constantly arriving at being a better man. And because we've, we've delayed those things for so long and also it's so hard to reach financial independence to the point where you can viably sustain a family without working 14 hour days. All these things get pushed to later in life. And so you've got this tiny little narrow window in which you are in the right uh, frame of mind. You're the right person and in the right life circumstances that you can 
that you can uh, sustain a family and nurture a family the way it needs to be. And it's not going to become a detrimental effect and not going to put these kids into a bad spot. Uh, so I just, I look forward to the day where we're homeschooling kids and by the age of 10, they've got so much maturity and responsibility that they're, you know, well advanced of what we would consider a 30 year old right now. <laughs> and then by the time our kids are, you know, 20 years old, they're perfectly capable of, of having families and leading families high quality families, not just like barely skimming by families. Kind of like when we look at, you know, old videos or read old books of, of these kids who, you know, at 16 years old had more responsibility than I have at 40, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like it economically, you can see a lot of people saying, well, I'm going to hold off having kids. Like never mind the feminist stuff saying getting married is the patriarchy and you're a slave to your husband. Never mind the red pill stuff saying if you get married, your wife's only there to, to take your money and divorce you and, and choke you out on alimony, right? Never mind all that shit. Um, there's there's mild truths to some of it, but for the most part, it's, it's theatrics. Um, never mind all that. We're entering, we, we've been talking about this for a year now, we are entering into a bad economic era. We got inflation that's already here. We're very likely going into recession or depression, maybe this year, maybe next year, maybe the year after, right? We don't know how long they can kick this can down the road, but eventually something's going to give. Homes are unaffordable. You got all this dark economic outlook. So for all the talk of, well, I, you know, you want to have a, a wife that's going to be a homemaker and she wants to be a homemaker and you're going to homeschool your kids. The economic reality is both of you might have to work 50 hours a week. Like it's a very re realistic thing right now, 2023 going into 2024 and the rest of the 2020s that two parents to beat inflation and to just simply survive are both going to have to work two jobs while raising kids. So how do you realistically tell, tell a couple like, Hey, go ahead and have your kids now. Don't wait. And it's, well, Hey, you're going to have some really stressful fucking hard times period. And, but if you don't do it now, the, the consequences are that you roll into the 2030s in your late thirties or forties, maybe by then the economy's turned around and you say, Hey, now we're financially ready to start having kids. And you're in the position I'm in where you're up against your own chromosomal clock. So you might have to really talk to your spouse and say, Hey, we've got this, you know, trad life, trad wife, homeschool fantasy about our kids. But the reality is uh, because of the current economy, we're both going to have to work our asses off and we just got to figure it out. That's still better than winding up in your forties, unable to have children, right? You're gambling financial security, you know, the hope of a future with financial security against your own physical decay. So it's a really hard sell. It's really hard to, to tell a couple that like, Hey, you're just going to have to grin down and bear it. And you might just have to work your asses off. Also knowing that your boomer relatives are going to hang you out the dry even though their greatest generation parents and grandparents helped them along, you're on your own. You're restarting the clock on your family, on your lineage, and you just got to deal with it. Oh my gosh. The boomers hanging them out to, out to dry. That just, that just rings home. So true. <laughs> I've never seen a generation so willing to sacrifice its children to the machine. Uh, it, it's just mind blowing. And, and there's just now getting the realization that, Oh, wait a second. We need all these kids to actually carry real economic weight in order to sustain us in our retirement because all of our public securities and our retirement savings are worthless. They're just pieces of paper that we're hoping these kids will buy, but they're not buying them. <laughs> so we're screwed. Anyway, the other, the other thing I was going to say was you mentioned ways to beat inflation or how, what it takes to beat inflation. 
And this is a good time to plug Wi-Fi money because it helps solve this really critical problem, which is, you know, inflation is kind of a blanket number across the country, but it varies drastically by locale. So if you're in a position or you're in a place where lots of people are moving to, lots of people with cash, you're experiencing incredibly high inflation, like shockingly high levels of inflation compared to anything we're used to in the States. Um, and so if, but if you're in a rural area where perhaps not a lot of people are moving to, or people still have a lot of traditional jobs uh, tied to the local economy, um, then you, there's an opportunity there for you to move to those places and, you know, just in line with what we're saying, uh, embrace the rural lifestyle, uh, food uh, production and, you know, local economic resiliency, all those things, um, unplugging from the system and, and all of the brainwashing and, and, uh, and softening of, of people that occurs in the cities. But also, if you're in Wi-Fi money and you live in the country, uh, you, can, you can make money off of markets that operate in really, really expensive locations, right? Because especially on Wi-Fi, a lot of your customers, if you're doing it right, your high-end customers live in these really expensive locales. And yet you can, can live in a place where inflation isn't going crazy. Uh, and so you can bridge that gap you know, through, through the internet. It makes everybody neighbors. You can bridge that gap where your business is based in effectively or, or uh, figuratively in uh, an expensive metro area or several expensive metro areas. That's where you're sourcing your customers. And you are living in a really cheap area. And granted, there's lots of people doing this. It's kind of a basic labor arbitrage, but it's really, it's one of the really uh, empowering things about Wi-Fi money. I mean, you just described my life, honestly, because um, again, for those who aren't familiar, I have another anonymous, anonymous account where I uh, publish books. Um, and TLDR is that I don't put my books and this podcast under the same names for the simple fact of I don't want to nuke my Wi-Fi money if I piss off people on this account, okay? That being said, we live in a rural area. We bought ourselves a 100-plus acre farm, and it's great because we run the Wi-Fi. My wife has her Wi-Fi business. I have mine. We um, are able to make money, and it's cheaper here. The restaurants are cheaper. The stores are cheaper. It's funny. The grocery store, you would think, would be more expensive than the cities because we're three hours from the main district distribution hubs and yet whenever i go to the city like we were just there last month for the egg extraction everything was more expensive the grocery store more expensive the restaurants more expensive the gas is more expensive and it blew my mind that we're three hours down the uh, the supply chain the logistics chain and everything's cheaper in the rural area so that was a shock to me i did not understand just how expensive things were in the city so that right there is another reason to go to the uh to the country areas. But then there's also the network effect is great too, because I know more of my neighbors living out in a rural area and every one of my neighbors has 50 to a thousand acres, right? So neighbor is still a drive. There's no walking to my neighbor's house. Everybody has to be driven to, but I know more of my neighbors here than at any other location I've lived in in the last 25 years to include the cities. So I know more of my neighbors. And because of that, I've started this uh, a trade network now. I got a neighbor who loves um, lamb, so I've give I've been giving him one lamb. I, I've given him two now over the last couple months. But I give him one lamb every couple months. He's got a sawmill. He's giving me free lumber, and it's better quality lumber and cut cut to the dimensions I need, better than Home Depot. So and it's 
is better quality and it's free because I'm giving him lamb. And then he's giving me all the sawdust that he has left over from milling that I can use for mulch and bedding for my birds, uh, mulch in my garden. And then, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going on a rant here, but there's a guy in town who has a, a tractor store and he's got the, the equipment for the tractors comes in on these pallets that are made out of two by six lumber, uh, two by sixes and, and four by four lumber that's eight and 10 and 12 foot long. He's been dropping them off at my neighbor because he burns them in a big burn pile. Now he's dropping them off to me. Every one of those pallets is probably $200 or more of lumber if you bought it from Home Depot. So in addition to having a sawmill that's next to me in exchange for lamb, I got these pallets being dropped off for free. They're worth hundreds of dollars of lumber that I can use for you know, um, refurbishing my barns, refurbishing my corrals, building shelters for the animals. And, like, and all it is is talking to local people. And all of this because I don't have to have a job. I don't have to be in the city working a nine to five. I've got my Wi-Fi money paying the bills, freeing me up to network uh, with all the other local farmers and stuff. And it's just every month I'm shocked at the next person I meet and what we're able to do for each other and just the money saved, but also the network effect. It's just, it's amazing what's happening out here. It didn't used to be this way, but now I, I see um, that pretty much every job in the city just equals slavery. It's just what, you know, how much are you spending in your slavery? It used to be, I think, that you could have lots of high-paying jobs in the city um, and you weren't enslaved, or at least they, you had a substantial amount of savings you were occurring over time and you could eventually move to the move to the suburbs, or not suburbs, but uh, move to the rural areas. But I now think it's it like, was more comfortable slavery back then. <laughs> yeah, Sorry maybe. to interrupt you. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it was more comfortable slavery because the dollar went farther and the wages, wages have technically been flat since the 70s. A lot of reasons why, but... Um, Bottom lines, they've been flat, but through the 80s and 90s, even though the wages were flat, you could buy more with your money and your expenses were less. Therefore, you could be a wage slave and not know it because you were so much more comfortable. Now that your wages can't keep up with inflation and cost of living, you notice that you're a slave and you're following under. It's just, it's a difference between being a, a comfortable Roman slave versus being a uh, African slave in America, right? You're both slaves, but one has a much better quality of life than the other. Yeah. I, the thing that I, uh, that I've seen is that in the past we had a middle class that had a reasonable, you know, line of sight to retirement just through wage earnings and, you know, uh, reasonably high wage earnings. Now there is no line of sight to retirement and people are realizing, as you said, oh my gosh, we're slaves. We've been slaves all along, but they made it comfortable enough before that it wasn't, it wasn't uh, an emergency. It wasn't urgent. It wasn't, you know, I'm ruined for life. <laughs> Whereas now it's like, it, I just keep seeing all these people who make a ton of money in the city and their lives are not getting better. Uh, you know, you hear all these accounts of like, it takes 200, 300 K a year to survive in New York. New York city, um, versus, you know, 40 K a year out in, <laughs> out in, you know, pretty nice places where you don't have to deal with a lot of people and you don't have to deal with shitty people, I should say. Well, yeah. And that's, um, a studio apartment in New York costs more than my mortgage for a hundred acre property. Okay. So let that, and my hundred acre property comes with two homes, uh, stables, a barn, stables and barn being two different buildings. Uh, two different shops, and um, I got another structure I can't really describe. But uh, okay, another structure that I can't describe because it's it, I can't describe it without showing you pictures. Not because it's some weird uh, illegal or anything. Nothing, nothing 
nothing bizarre, just a metal building. Anyways, um, you get so much more per month for your dollar. Then, and it's like, what are you getting in the cities? And this is, again, I, I've got my own bias, right? I've spent time in the cities. I don't understand their purpose. Uh, I know there's people who would come out to where I am and they'd hyperventilate because it's just so wide open. Um, and I get if you're single, rural areas are really tough. Um, if you don't bring a husband or wife with you or if you don't graduate from high school with them, you have to, you're not going to get it. Well, I get that. But other than binge drinking and going to fancy restaurants, what do cities have? I just don't get it. I don't get it. So I'm open to people explaining it to me, but when they say culture, normally they just mean bars and, and restaurants. So I don't get what cities are offering you. Cheap stimulation. That's what it is. Coming from a guy who lived in a big city in his twenties, cheap stimulation that kind of just uh, distracts you from wasting your life away. Yeah. So, but anyway, just rewinding about two minutes back to when you were talking about, um, you know, how there was an actual path to middle-class retirement. I think it's kind of like a hundred year bubble. Uh, give or take that hundred years, but there's been a, this fluke economic bubble where Henry Ford made the 40 hour work week. And there's a lot of people today who complain that you shouldn't have to work 40 hours on odds. Like, no, no, you don't understand history. The 40 hour work week meant that you can make a living not working 80 hours a week. Okay. He, he brought you from working six or seven days a week and child labor and other horrible stuff. He brought it down to a 40 hour work week that where you could afford to buy the cars that you were making. That was unheard of. It was revolutionary. And that catapulted the 40s and 50s suburbia because it was so much better than what you had prior to that. So that was a very revolutionary thing, the 40-hour work week and being able to work for other people. Because if you um, if you if you got like eight hours to kill, go to the Martyr Made podcast and listen to uh, Whose America Is It Anyway? And it's all about the uh, 1920s um, West Virginia coal miners, the mining towns. And it's like, slavery after slavery you know slavery was illegal in the 1920s clearly but those those mining towns that could that tells you how bad things could be um you know as a as a worker right and it was really um i can't stress enough how important that podcast is to put your mind in the right perspective of what labor is was and could be um but moving forward you get the 40-hour work week then you start getting pensions Pensions were a great thing. It's like you work for them for 30 years and then they just pay you money until the day you die. Well, that was not a sustainable model because people lived decades past retirement age. So that wasn't sustainable. Uh, so you went from pensions to 401k. Well, now we're watching in real time as 401ks fail and boomers can't leave the market because their 401ks aren't keeping up or they didn't put enough in. And they were still pushing this idea that you got to do your 401k, your 5% match, all that. And it's like, it's not working. It'll work for some. You'll have people who come out and tell you, I got $6 million in my 401k. It's wonderful. But most people got like 30 grand in their 401k, maybe a few hundred thousand, and it's not enough. Um, so we're watching in real time for the average boomer how a 401k is not enough. And we're going to see Gen X um, collectively has like $7 in their 401k. So that whole generation could be. Uh, but when millennials get to retirement age, you're going to see the 401k is going to fail them as well. So now we're we're coming out of this economic bubble that started in the Henry Ford era and we're moving on to the next thing. Um, and entrepreneurship is going to be the way it's going to be Wi-Fi money or a combination of Wi-Fi IRL money. We've, we took, again, we've been talking about this for over a year now, but you have to be in control of your own money. There's no scenario moving forward where you work for somebody else and maintain an appropriate quality of life. It's just not sustainable. Well, yeah, uh, 
that's worth saying again. You can't work for someone else and maintain a reasonable quality of life. You will be a wage slave. That's it's exactly like one of the top three themes of probably the century. Um, you were mentioning pensions, 401ks, and the, and the progression through there. Um, it's interesting. Like uh, It takes real economic growth to grant these economic luxuries, like a guaranteed 30-year retirement, like lots of economic growth. It, and that's aside from the, the financial engineering um, problem that is guaranteeing a payment from a non-guaranteed source of payments, right? Because these companies don't have guaranteed sources of payments, but they have guaranteed uh, outlays in terms of the of paying these pensions. Um, and so there's just multiple layers of problems there. Um, but one of the good things we have going on is that we have like tremendous real productivity growth through the convergence of exponential technologies that are all happening at the same time in the, in the 2010s and 2020s and probably the 2030s. So if you were able to take advantage of those technology gains, you can position yourself in a place where you can own some of that capital, you're, you'll probably be fine. Um, if you are competing against robots for your job, you're screwed. If you're competing against the Federal Reserve who's uh, inflating away the value of your dollars, you're screwed. Uh, so I, I just see a tremendous amount of opportunity for uh, people in the country to benefit, uh, whereas people in the city will become slaves again, just like they were, just like they were in the past. Right? You're going to see this flourishing in rural areas that embrace Wi-Fi money through Starlink, uh, and it's going to create an opportunity to embrace real economic growth um, to places that have probably been a little behind the times. Um, and and you'll also have tremendous control over the quality of life uh, in the country and not be under the th- thumb of the regime. Yeah, and the, here's the unfortunate reality, right? Is that not everybody is suited to be a um, entrepreneur, whether it's in real life or Wi-Fi. And if you are looking in the mirror and you know you are not suited for it, you have one of two choices. You start really working to change who you are to become an entrepreneur, or you just resign yourself to the fact that you are going to be some form of wage slave. Um, And I hate to be so doomerish about it, but it's, let me back up a step. Half of Gen Z gets it. Gen Z is the most entrepreneurial generation for its age that we've seen ever, like since they've uh, kept track of these types of metrics. So half of Gen Z is looking at the corporate world and saying, no, thank you. The other half is communist. They're just straight up communists because they're going, I don't want to work that hard. You're not paying me enough to live on and on. And they almost get it. They understand the part where their wages aren't enough, but they think the solution is, well, just pay me more without understanding the consequences of that. Or they just go, well, the CEO makes all these millions. He should give me some of that. Employment is not charity. You're not entitled to a job and a paycheck. If the work you're doing doesn't produce money for the employer, they can't pay you more. You know, some of these people don't even get the concept that they need to make for their employer the amount of money they're being paid, let alone they actually, you know, if they're getting $50 an hour, they need to make their employer 100 to 150 an hour. They need to make them more money than they're being paid. They can't understand that concept. The entrepreneur gets it. So the people who just say, I don't have the right personality, I'm not smart enough, I'm too lazy, or whatever it is to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be left behind. The best you can hope for is to become the most comfortable wage slave uh, because you know what else what else is there 
you're relying on somebody else's good graces to pay you and you're reliant. They've taken all the risk. They get all the reward. You're just going to get a small stipend from it and you're going to be trapped in that lifestyle. So I just cannot hammer home enough the point that you've got to find your niche, whether at the very basic level, you know, you could be, if you could be cleaning houses, right? You could be your own housekeeper. You just go around cleaning people's houses. That is the base level of self-employment. And, and that is no insult to house cleaners. I know lots of people who make good money doing that, both as side business as, and as main business. You know, same thing going for landscapers. And then you go up to more technical work as, as in trades and stuff. That's the most basic level of entrepreneurship is just you pay me to do the labor you're unwilling to do. And that's fine. You can make a killing doing that. You know, for as much as we're pushing people to do Wi-Fi money and other um, bigger paying things at the very least, you can be in charge of your labor and set your own rates, um, and control a customer base that way. But you've got to do something beyond showing up at a corporate office to just bang on a keyboard all day for somebody else. Um, it, yeah, it, I think in real areas, aside from the drug problems and the losers who've just decided they don't want to live anymore, um, people are incredibly entrepreneurial. Uh, children are naturally entrepreneurial. And we institutionalize them until they lose all of those abilities. Everyone on the Wild West Frontier was an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's it's in our nature to be like that if we just don't beat it out of ourselves. Um, and so I think in the next, you know, you mentioned that top half of, of Gen Z is is very entrepreneurial. I think in in the next couple of decades they're going to flourish. Uh, and uh, just again drives home the point that the these bottom half of Gen Z that are communist. They're going to proliferate into the corporations. You're already seeing this. If you're if you deal with these corporations on a daily basis, even as just a customer, but especially if you're doing business with them, you realize how little they they're actually capable of doing. Uh, and and again, it just really drives home the point. These public securities are worthless. They're they're just eking out the last few inches that they have, um, and uh, and and all they're going to do is hire more shitty people in the future until they go out of business. Um, and uh, it's just it's just money printing that's keeping them in business right now. So these public securities are worthless. You have to find or build operations that are adding real value, doing real things for a real price, for a real customer, and aren't just going public to artificially reduce their cost of capital. Yeah. Um, unless you have anything else to add on that topic, I think we've, we've made our point. Um, anything you want to add on that? And then we'll just do a hard shift to something new. No, it's just um, the the bill is coming due and it's ugly. Uh, so so make the move now. It's, you're kind of in a race against all the other people who are going to be competing for these resources. So it's definitely a first mover advantage. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's kind of shift to the next thing. Um, Costco. The Costco. I call it the Costco effect. Um, recently, Costco uh, was in the headlines again because they were selling gold bars and they sold out. And I got a good laugh out of this because people I know who I've been telling for years how to buy gold by simply just going online to places like Money Metals Exchange or JM Bullion. Um, I don't endorse either of those, but I've bought gold and silver from both of them. So they don't give me any kickbacks, but I've used them both. I'm satisfied with both. Anyways, um, I've been telling people for years how you can go there or you can go to local coin shops and buy gold bars, gold coins, silver, whatever. And they were always hemmed and hawed about it. And then Costco's selling gold bars and they just go in there and they snap them right up. And it's like, cause Costco's selling it. 
And Costco is a type of, um, it's like a, an authority or credentialism that people just take it. And it's, I get the laugh out of it because it's, um, th their goal, it was, the price was fine. It was competitive. It wasn't a steal. It wasn't a ripoff. It was just pretty much what anybody who buys gold normally would expect it to be, give or take a few dollars. But I'm laughing at it because, because it comes from Costco, it has more authority. And now it's, it's a better buy because people trust Costco and Costco has this, uh, it has a great business model in the sense that, um, if you've ever been to Costco and then you've ever been to Sam's club, there's a distinct difference in quality of product. Sam's club will have 10 versions of the same product ranging from garbage to less garbage. Costco will have two versions of every product. They've got the good one and the better one. And the price is decent, but with little exception, it's never the best price for that product. And it's never the highest quality of that product line. Like if you're looking at generators, they'll show you two good generators. It's not the best price, but it's only not the best price by a few dollars typically. And it's not necessarily the best quality, but it's a good quality and then a really good quality. So you can always get better than what Costco is offering. Um, but you can rest assured if you go there, what you're buying is good. Uh, and you're not getting ripped off. And it, it's just a very simple model in that regard. And it appeals to people who don't want to do research online or don't understand the quality differences of the products they're looking at. They just want to go buy something and know it's going to work. So if you don't know shit about generators, but you want a backup generator, you can just walk into Costco and buy it. Whereas if you do know something about generators, you'll go down to China Freight, uh, Harbor Freight, excuse me, the, I call it the Chinese junkyard, but you go down to Har Harbor Freight and you know that their generator is an exact copy of a Honda generator. Therefore, you know exactly what, you know, how to fix it if it goes bad. You also know because it's, you know, stolen property off of Honda, you know, it's going to be a good generator anyways, right? Um, and that's just using generators as an example. You can do that with literally every freaking product inside of um, Costco. So you can just go in there and trust that what you're buying is good. It's meant for the impulse buyer who wants quality. So it's a very, like, it, it's such an obvious, um, it's such an obvious uh, uh, strategy. You know, most stores don't do it. Most, you know, you, you look at Sam's Club and Sam's Club is meant for the cheap bargain shopper who just wants to fill their cart with as much crap as they can for a dollar. Um, so it's definitely a different mentality of shopper as well. I can think of uh, one additional point. Oh, by the way, it wouldn't be a, a Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast if we didn't have a Harbor Freight reference. But uh, I can think of one additional um, perspective on on Costco's brand, which is the value of your time, right? If outsourcing the curation process is valuable, then I'm happy to pay a premium for that because I want to spend my brain cells on, on high-value decisions, right? I don't want to have to evaluate each one of these products from the ground up. Uh, so for that reason, I'm just really grateful for Costco because it just really simplifies the buying process. It's like the, it's the classic middle-class brand, right? I know I'm not going to make a terrible decision with what I buy at Costco and they're going to show me two, maybe three choices. And it's really simple and quick and easy. Um, I'm not going to get screwed. And I know Costco has brand on the line for that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I think of, I mean, Costco is probably one of the reasons that I always want to be within an hour or two of a major metro area. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there, there's exceptions to the, to what I just said too, where you will have a real steal. Like I bought a mattress from them that was $2,000 cheaper than at, um, 
what is that chain store mattress firm mattress king something like that whatever the, the chain mattress store is um i bought a mattress a while ago that and it was, it was same exact one same brand size everything but costco was like 900 dollars, and at the other store it was like 2900 dollars. it was an insane difference costco will have sales sometimes uh and it's, sometimes it's not even just a sale it's just like here we have this item and it costs this much period um so there are exceptions to where you really do save massive amounts of money, but that's not the main draw. That's just a bonus. It's just the, the simple fact that you can go there and know that what you're buying is good. Even the Kirkland brand, um, we used to do, when we had our pet service business, uh, we used to source um, all of our dog food and cat food from Costco until Chewy uh, really took off. And then uh, we had, because Chewy.com would, deliver right to the door. And that was the, the deciding factor because you know, Chewy's was slightly more expensive per pound, but it was the fact that I could save a couple hours, but by them just dropping it off at the door um, versus going to Costco and having to load it up and, and all that. So, um, but their food was excellent quality, excellent quality dog food, excellent quality cat food. Um, Kirkland brand in general is really good quality. So, it's just a, it's a very simple model where they just said, hey, we're just going to sell you good stuff. And, and you have to go, why is it that in 2023, that's such a revolutionary business model of we're going to sell you quality products? Because you look at the, the Walmart Sam's Club method and it's like, we're going to give you the cheapest shit possible because bargain shoppers are shopping addicts and they'll just fill their cart with crap because they think it's wonderful. Uh, whereas Costco is like you said. You don't want to waste your mental energy. You just want to walk in and say, oh, yeah, I do need new towels. These are good quality and they're cheap. Oh, I do need these tools. Oh, I do need this food. And you just buy it and go and not have to worry about it. Um, but it also leads to another interesting thing like the gold. It's just it cracks me up because the typical Costco shopper will never go and research gold. But when it's put in front of their face at Costco, they'll buy it because now it has the credibility. So that's just a interesting thing to keep in mind as you're building out your brand and your business is what that um, credentialism, that alternate form of credentialism and reliability brings with your brand. When your brand name actually means something. Yeah, what a strange thing to have a brand that means something. Why do you think Sam's Club was never able to make a run at Costco in terms of that brand? Or why did nobody, why was nobody ever able to make a Costco-like brand? Well, Sam's Club, I think the reason they don't do it is because Sam's Club is just big Walmart to, to the extent that I don't even understand the purpose of going to Sam's Club when you could just go to Walmart and grab three more items off the shelf. And it's uh, the price is, you know, within a few pennies, like there's very I, well, let me back up. I haven't been in, been in a Sam's Club in about 15 years, but my understanding is it has not changed much in 15 years. I could be completely wrong by now, but at the time that I actually went there, you just look at stuff and if you pull out a calculator and go, okay, at Walmart, it costs this much. And here the three pack costs exactly the same as buying three at Walmart. So why am I, why am I here? And of course, Walmart is built, um, without sounding too much like a snob, Walmart is built for the low income shopper. Walmart is meant to be affordable. Um, and they, they have some things that are quality, but for the most part, it's meant to be the most affordable thing for the lower middle class and lower class people to actually be able to survive living, right? Um, if you're low income, you cannot go to Target. You can't shop at Target. It's, that'll bankrupt you. But Walmart means you can actually put food on the table and clothes on your kid's back. Sam's Club is just a bulk extension of that. They really just kept the Walmart 
business model and extended it. They didn't do anything special. Um, depending on your region, there are other club stores that can give Costco a run of their money, but they're local stores. You know, I think on the East Coast, you have BJ's. Um, I don't know what they've got on, on some of the West and Northwest areas, but I know there are other club type stores that um, they carry the products they carry and they're at a good price. Um, and it's, it's a similar model, but there's just nothing with a national brand like Costco. It's all regional. It just blows my mind that it's, they basically have a monopoly on that and there's no, there's no competitors who can make a run at them. Well, it's going to be harder too, because we're living in the era now of, of continuous extraction. So there is no, like you rant about SAS every other episode for this reason, SAS is there to extract every dollar it can from you and then run. And then you even look at, um, I, I buy, I buy products from some people off Twitter that I like, uh, I bought, um, workout programs from like AJ Cortez. I bought, um, some, some Wi-Fi money type stuff, how to build newsletters and things from other people, other, you know, over the years. And they sell you a good product, but what happens the second you buy from them is they immediately, every day you're getting three emails a day from them. Uh, non-stops. Now I have to spam you because I'm not reading three emails a day from you. And then it, occasionally I have to go into my spam box to look for a legit email. And it's just filled with just nonsense from people who sold me a program one time. And it's like, you know, it's not, it, I get the business model. You sell them one thing and then you bombard them with, with spam to sell them the next thing, but you're losing me as a customer. I know there's uh, more people, mo most people don't have my mindset, so you're going to make more money off of it. But your brand went from, I sold you a really good protein shake. I sold you a really good quality workout program. I sold you a quality how to uh, make money, whatever. I, I, whatever they, they sold you was quality, but now they're ruining their name by just emailing you nonstop. And it's just, it, it makes you feel like a cheap transaction and that it's not about selling you a product. It's about selling you the next product. So when that's the entire business model that the nation has, Costco stands out because they're not doing that. Yeah, again, it just it, it seems so obvious to me that this is desperately needed. And so why isn't this happening everywhere? Why why don't I we have Costco versions of everything that we buy in our life? Because there's there's such a, a lack of brand quality anymore. Um, I could see why perhaps Walmart wasn't able to do it because it's effectively the same products as Walmart and it's effectively the same price as Walmart, <laughs> but you're just capitalizing on the bargain shoppers who are, as you said, shop shopping addicts. And they think that if they think they're getting a deal, they'll just buy a bunch of it. So they go to Sam's Club thinking they're getting a deal and they don't ever actually do the mental. Um, but uh, I'm just amazed that there aren't more Costco's out there for everything. I think over time there, there will be, but there's too much, um, there's too much cheap transaction and there's too many cheap transactional shoppers. You know, the bargain shoppers are the absolute worst um, God, they, the bargain shopper is the absolute worst shopper because they will spend themselves into poverty and they'll do so while patting themselves on the back the whole way about how much money it's absolutely incredible. And because of that, the treat your customer as a cheap transaction helps too. So I guess financial illiteracy really helps, um, helps the business model. And that's why there's not more Costco's because it's, it's just more profitable, especially when I can bombard thousands of people a day with emails. Uh, it's it's so much easier to just bombard them with emails and get a couple extra programs sold or a 
couple extra products sold than it is to build out a brand of reliable people to come back because it's, it's probably a 10 to one ratio. You know, to treat my customers as human beings, I'm going to go through thousands one time to get dozens to come back. Whereas if I treat you all as cheap transactions and I go through a few thousand of them, of you, a few hundred will come back um, because they, they, they actually open up their spam emails. So until there's a shift of people who treat their shopping the way I do, you're not going to, to see more Costco's. Yeah, I get it. It's funny how you say uh, bargain shoppers will spend themselves into poverty. Is that what you're talking about when you when you mentioned girl math? Um, that's so bargain shoppers and girl math are parallels, but they're not quite the same thing. So for those who aren't tracking, there's there's these viral videos going out there, mostly on TikTok, but they're making their way to Twitter and Instagram too, of these girls explaining girl math, and it's they go, well, if I buy something with cash, it's free, and the boyfriend or husband goes, what the fuck do you mean? And she goes, well. I've already taken the money out of my bank account. So if it's not in my bank account, it's not there. So if I spend cash, it's free. And he's like, no, that's not how it works at all. And then she goes, well, if I, have, if I put money on my Starbucks app, that money's already out of my account. So anything I buy at Starbucks is free now. Or if I, you know, when they say spend $200 and then you get a $20 gift card, I just made $20. He goes, yeah, but it's not even a $20 gift card. You have to spend another 40 to use that 20. So you have to spend $240 in order to save 20 she goes yeah i just made 20 dollars off of that and he's like no that's not how that works so every marketing scheme is working and women actually and not women the the girl math women right these women who fall for this crap um think it works it's the same thing with the people who are who the credit card rewards points people where they're like i made a hundred dollars on my credit card this month it's like no you spent you know what ten thousand dollars to get a hundred dollars back you spent money, you, you overspent your money and now you're congratulating yourself for getting a hundred dollars back. Right. And because that's how the average person does it, you know, the, never mind the credit card churn people. There's like one out of a thousand people who can actually work the credit cards properly, but the other 999 think they're doing it that way. When in fact, they're just spending to oblivion and then patting themselves on the back for the rewards. And it's just this complete numerical and financial illiteracy is um, it's killing people. And the bargain shopper is the absolute worst because they just spend it. They think that if it says on sale, that they save money. And it's like, you try to explain to them, no, no, they raise the price and then put it on sale. So if you bought it last month at the normal price, you paid a thousand dollars. If you buy it this month while it's on sale, it's still a thousand dollars. And they're like, no, but it's 10% off. You know, they raise the price from a thousand dollars to $1,100. Then they knock 10% off. So now it's a thousand dollars again nothing's changed and they just look at you like you got a dick run out of your forehead and they're like no i saved a hundred dollars like cool well you got no money in your bank account so what what did you save you know they they just believe the advertisement in front of them there's there are legitimate sales in this world there's legitimate money saving events but you actually got to know how math works to make use of it i do have a, a related point about credit cards um, credit cards for consumers um, is a is a big trap, obviously, and gets a lot of people in trouble, and perpetual trouble. But credit cards for business are an amazing tool, amazing tool, um, because they have all these protections because they're primarily used as consumer credit cards, right? Uh, or at least credit cards in general are primarily primarily used for public consuming, right? Um, but for a business. Uh, it, it creates all these amazing <laughs> ways that you can fund your business with really low cost of capital compared to raising equity 
because that's the effective, that's, that's the trade-off. Um, that's what it's replacing. Uh, because most of the time, you know, if you can qualify for bank loans, great for your business. Awesome. That's cheap capital. But if you can't qualify for bank loans, you're primarily stuck in revenue-based financing, which is expensive, or credit cards, which is a fair amount cheaper. And revenue-based financing is even harder. So credit cards actually, I think they're the number one most commonly used way to launch a business. And there's a reason. It's a really good opportunity for people. So word to the wise, credit cards uh, get you in trouble if you're if you're spending frivolously on your life. Um, but credit cards for business, huge opportunity. And there are some, as much as I bash on fintech and SaaS companies, there's some fintech and SaaS companies that have really stepped into fill that gap where you can use your credit card to launch your business in really useful ways and really, um, uh, really feasible ways. So just keep that in mind. It's especially with these like, you know, 0% interest rates for 18 months kind of promos. Those are amazing. That's incredible. You, you can't find anything else even close to that anywhere in the corporate world. So just keep that in mind. Credit cards for business. Awesome. Credit cards for consumers. Terrible. And all of that with the caveat that you better have a good plan in 18 months to be able to start paying that balance beyond, I'm just going to roll it to the next card because you can really, I've seen people, I've seen people do exactly what you're, you're saying both ways where they use the zero interest to launch themselves. And then, you know, basically they use it as a free loan. Then I've seen people who live in perpetual rolling over from zero interest to zero interest. And the balance goes up every time because they just, they, they can't get out from underneath it. And it eventually, they can't roll it over anymore. I've seen, I've seen it catch up. So you, you'll see a lot of TikTok videos out there of telling people, oh, just keep rolling, rolling your balance over and you never have to uh, pay interest on it. Eventually, it will catch up to you. It will catch up. It could be a decade. It could be more. Just keep that in mind. That's, that's my only caveat on that. Absolutely right. I mean, if, um, if you're building value in your business, and you're building it with free capital, that's amazing. But you have to be building value. If you're wasting money, now you're doing the same thing as all these people who are buying on credit thinking it's free. But you have to be building a business. You have to be building value. And then you can transfer, once you've got that business cash flowing, then you can transfer that debt into a standard corporate product. Uh, and then you and then you don't have all this outstanding debt in your name um, that you have to roll over at 18 months or something. It's, it's just a tremendous... Uh, it's it's like a starter for your engine. Uh, it's an incredibly good way to get the thing going to where it's in a self-sustaining state. But you actually have to be getting something going. You can't just be, you know, spending money and telling people you're a businessman. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's a lot like the people who um, they say you got to spend the money, otherwise you're going to get taxed on it. And it's like, yeah, kind of. You, you got to spend it on one something that's tax deductible, but two something that's a legitimate purpose for the business when you just spend money for the sake of uh you know not having to pay taxes you you haven't actually accomplished anything you've just spent money um but we can dive into more of that another time um i think that's going to be a, about wrapping it up for today folks um we do actually have a good list of topics to talk on but i'm running out of time and i'm also running out of brain power to talk competently on it so um do you have anything you uh want to add to wrap this episode up Remy no all good I think this is uh there's just a lot of really interesting stuff going on in the world right now and uh it, our, our narrative hasn't changed it's just uh you just have to be sharper than or smarter than the average bear yeah absolutely um 
So this this current economic state we're in can only be kicked it can only kick the can down the road for so long before something gives. Um, now we've been saying that for a year and it hasn't broke yet. Uh, it's showing some signs of cracking. Could easily be another year or two before it really gives, uh, or it could be next week. So with that, um, right now you can reach us on Substack. Uh, if you, depending on what platform you listen to this on, you can always go to Wi-Fi Pioneers at Substack and comment directly on the episode. You can also share it from there. Tell us what you think, ask any questions. Otherwise, um, have a good weekend, everybody. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.